Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Amen. Grab your seats, grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Matthew chapter 16. I've been pumped to share this day with you, man. Didn't our praise team and all of them just do a great job this morning? Golly. So as you grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Matthew 16, there was a Sunday school teacher one day who asked her preschool class on the Sunday before Easter if they knew what happened on Easter. She wanted to try to prepare them so that they would be ready the next Sunday. Why is it so important? And one little girl who was bald stood up and said, Easter is when the whole family gets together and and they eat turkey and they sing uh, songs and talk about the pilgrims and all that stuff. (laughs) And the teacher said, no, that's not it. That's Thanksgiving, sweetheart. So another one stood up and said, teacher, I know what Easter is. Easter is when you get this tree and you decorate it and, and you give out gifts to everybody and sing lots of songs. And the teacher said, oh my goodness, does nobody know what Easter is? She said, honey, that is Christmas. So finally, one little boy stood up so proudly and said, Teacher, I know what Easter is. Easter is when Jesus was killed and put in a tomb and left there for three days. And the teacher rejoiced. Finally, somebody got it right. But then the student went on. <laughs> you ever do this like you say an answer and you should just stop, okay? Because you, <laughs> the little boy continued. said, Then everybody gathers around the tomb. He went on and waits for Jesus to come out. And if he sees his shadow, he goes back inside, <laughs> and we have six more weeks of winter. Man, I tell you what, I guess it's easy for a child in particular to get a little mixed up when it comes to Easter, but it's, if we're honest this morning, it's not just children who get a little mixed up, right? We as adults, we can easily get a little mixed up about Easter. We can get some facts mis- mixed up. We can get a little bit confused. We can come to the wrong conclusions, maybe, and not just about Easter as a whole, but about the person who's at the center of Easter, Jesus Christ himself. I mean, if people who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus got things a little mixed up, then surely those of us 2,000 years later, we're prone to get a little mixed up ourselves. I mean, just imagine if we were to go out on the streets of Bowling Green or on the streets of Scottsville today, and we asked people there on the street, if we asked them, who do you say Jesus is? Don't you think we would get some really interesting answers? We would get some, right? We would get some like way out there, outlandish, some really interesting answers. Well, that was the very question that Jesus himself asked his disciples one day. And we see the exchange in our text this morning. Our text is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 23. And I'm going to invite you to stand this morning to honor the reading of the word of God this morning. As you stand, Eastwood, remember... As we read from the Bible this morning that every word in Scripture is true. We're convinced here at Eastwood that the Bible is completely true. It's the very Word of God. You can trust it, and you should live by what it says. So it says this, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in the 13th verse. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Bar uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray together this morning. God, in the name of Jesus, we come and ask that you would help us to understand rightly who Jesus is. Father, that we would capture in and, and, and our minds, and not only in our minds, but in our hearts, the depth of Peter's declaration here. And may Peter's declaration be our declaration Father, we ask that you move in our midst today through the power of your preached word, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, and through the witness of your gathered saints. It's in Jesus' name we say thank you. Amen. Grab your seat. Grab your seat there. So who do you say Jesus is? I want you to see three things from the text this morning. The first thing that I need you to see from the text is that people often misunderstand who Jesus is. I mean, Jesus directly asks his disciples, who do people say that he is? Now, actually, he uses the phrase son of man. Do you see that there? Who do people say the son of man is? That was Jesus' favorite name for himself. When he spoke about himself, he often called himself the son of man. And so not only does that point to the fact that he is God in the flesh, that he's fully God and fully human. More importantly, that's a reference to a prophecy in Daniel 7 where one like a quote-unquote son of man would come at the end of the age and would be given everlasting dominion and, and power and glory and this invincible kingdom there where all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. And so every time that Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's essentially saying, hey, y'all, that, that dude in Daniel 7 is me. And so he asks his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples, they, they gave out all sorts of answers that they had heard. Now, these weren't the disciples' answers. Maybe they were curious or, or thought maybe, hey, there may be some validity to some of these. But at this point, they're simply reporting to Jesus here. Some people think that you are John the Baptist, they said. You see, because at this point, John the Baptist had been executed by the Jewish king. So they thought, well, maybe this is somebody who, who has sort of been reincarnated or, or kind of sprung up. Or maybe it's John the Baptist come back from heaven or something like that. The disciples said, some people think that you are Elijah. Now, Elijah, he, he was the most important of the Old Testament prophets, and, and, and he was expected to appear at the end of the age. 
Still others said, some people think that you may be the reincarnation of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, another one of the most important Old Testament prophets. And Jewish legend said that Jeremiah, before the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple, um, uh, the, 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 um, some of the folklore uh, around there said that the legend said that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and the altar from the temple to save them from being destroyed. And so some Jews thought that before the end of the age, Jeremiah would come back to earth and return this ark and the altar to the temple. Still others believe that Jesus was neither the reincarnated Elijah or the reincarnated Jeremiah, but instead just one of the prophets. So it's one of the prophets come back from the dead. And each of these groups and each of these folks, you know what, they may have been convinced by their answer. They may have thought they really had the answer. They may have been very sincere about their answer. But I want to say to you this morning, while all of those answers are very different, they all had one thing in common, and it's this. They were all wrong. Amen? They were all wrong. Every single one of them, even the sincere ones. I want to say to you this morning, did you know that you can be completely sincere in your beliefs, and at the same time, completely wrong. See, sincerity and rightness do not always go hand in hand. In fact, the, the, the great 19th century British Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he spoke to this well. He, here's a quote that he said, now, this is really good. He said, oh, my dear hearers, believe the truth and follow the truth. Do not believe that sincerity is enough. You need truth as well. If we are sincere in our religion, one says, it'll be all right with us, whatever that religion may be. Spurgeon continues, he says, nonsense. You know better. If you sincerely take the wrong road and go northward, you will not get to Brighton. If you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must be right, end quote. And here, beloved, in our text, the disciples are supplying all the wrong answers from people that they had talked to. But the people they were talking to, they're actually in plenty of company. There is plenty of company throughout the ages of people who often misunderstand Jesus. Right? It, it was happening then, it's happening now, it's happened all in between. It'll continue to happen until Jesus comes back. Perhaps it's even happening right now in this room. Maybe there are men and women, boys and girls, who have misunderstood who Jesus is. Maybe you would say, oh, he is a great prophet. He's just a great prophet. Or he's just a great teacher. Or he's just a good person who, who's an example of how we should love others. Or you know what? Maybe there are some of us here this morning who are more on the skeptical side. And you say, I think Jesus actually was lying. He was simply saying that he was the son of God to get a following and a crowd. Or maybe some of you would say this, I don't think he was lying. I think he sincerely believed 
that he was the son of God in the flesh, but he was a crazy loon. He was a crazy person who was delusional, who had this God psychosis or something like that. Or maybe you just think that he's just one option among many options when it comes to religions. But you know what? Again, in love, I say to you this morning, those answers, like the ones reported by the disciples, have one thing in common. They're all wrong. In love, according to the word of God, to the scripture here this morning, they are sincerely wrong. People often misunderstand who Jesus is, which brings me to the second thing that I want you to see this morning from our text. People often misunderstand who Jesus is, but number two, there's only one answer, at least only one right answer, and the answer is Jesus is the what, church? Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And so after hearing these reports from the disciples about who people think that he is, he pivots and he asks them directly. I I ain't talking about people out there anymore, he says. I'm talking about you. Who do you say that I am? Verse 15, Matthew 16, 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And beloved, Jesus is doing the same thing to you and to me here today, this morning. He is looking at us, right? He's not concerned so much about what people think. He's concerned about what you think. What you think. Because when you stand before God one day, it won't be people standing with you. It'll be you standing with you. He's saying to you and me, who do you say that I am? And there's only one answer, only one right answer. And Peter, who was always ready, man, to give an answer, whether it was right or wrong, right? You ever know somebody like that? They just can't stand silence. <laughs> they, they've got to say something. They don't care what it is as long as it's just something. They're going to do their best to get it right. But they really don't care if it's right or wrong as long as something is said. And Peter jumps in there. He gives his answer, and it's the right answer. Look at it with me. Verse 16, Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. (laughs) Ding, 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 right? Correct answer. Jesus affirms that answer. We know it's right because he affirms it in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Or in other words, Simon, son of Jonah. That's what Barjona means. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. So who do you say that I am? Jesus is the Christ. That is the only right answer. Now you may be familiar with the term Christ. But maybe you're not familiar with the way that Peter uses it here, right? Perhaps you've only heard the name Jesus Christ as if Christ is maybe like his last name, like Ben Simpson, like Jesus Christ. But Christ is not his name. Christ is his title. That's why Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Christ and Messiah both literally mean the anointed one. So when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, he is declaring that Jesus is this long-awaited king. This one that all of the Old Testament prophets had pointed toward. The one who was going to come and save the day. This Savior, the Son of the living God. God in the flesh. 
You see, it had been long prophesied before the ages that God would send a rescuer. Even from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, there was this promise there. Although quite veiled, there's a promise that one day a Savior will come to save the world. And here he is. Here he is in Jesus. Jesus is that hope. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a good person. He's certainly not a liar or a crazy person. He is the Christ. He's the promised one of God, the anointed one of God, sent to save mankind. But it's interesting here. Peter got the right answer. (laughs) By grace, God had revealed the answer to him, he says here. But Peter didn't understand the answer, right? You ever given an answer that you you, you knew the right answer? Like, I can tell you that E equals what? MC squared. That's the right answer. (laughs) I have no idea what it means. (laughs) I can't even tell you what 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 the little letters in that equation stand for. I know it's like Einstein's theory of relativity, right? But I still don't know what it means. I don't understand it. And here Peter, getting a revelation from God, said the right answer. But he didn't understand the answer. He didn't understand the answer. You see, he expected this Christ would be this military king who would come and and lead the people of Israel to victory over their Roman overlords. and, And who would lead the people of Israel into holiness. But beloved, listen to me. That was not God's plan. That was not God's plan for the Christ. You see, Jesus is not the Christ because he's a military king. That brings me to my third thing I want you to see from the text this morning. Is this, Jesus is the Christ because of his life, death, and resurrection. You see, immediately after Peter declares for the disciples that, uh, that, that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, Peter speaks for the whole group here, Jesus begins to teach them what that really means. So as you say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, he tells us what that means. So verse 21, look at Matthew 16, verse 21, and here he begins to blow up their preconceived notions. And maybe you've come in the building today with preconceived notions about who Jesus is. He straightens us out right here. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Wait, what? (laughs) What? I thought you were going to save us, Jesus. Looks like you're going to get defeated too, right? It blew their minds. No, 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 Jesus, you're the Christ. You're not going to die. We need you to be here, Jesus. In fact, the Bible says here that Peter took Jesus aside. Now, just imagine this for a moment, right? I mean, the boldness of Peter. Jesus, that'll never happen to you. Look at verse 22. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But it was Peter who needed rebuke to He needed straightening out. Look at verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Wow. You're a hindrance to me. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. You see, beloved, you need to understand this morning that God had bigger fish to fry than these Roman overlords. God had a bigger mission in mind than saving that tiny nation of Israel and that tiny people of the Israelites. God had a worldwide plan, much bigger. He sent Jesus to rescue his people, not just from the Roman overlords, but the entire world from sin, death, and the devil. Therefore, Jesus had to live, die, and arise again, just as he told the disciples. Beloved, that's the reason we're gathered here today. We are gathered here today because we're not only celebrating Jesus' life, we're not celebrating Jesus' vicarious death, his substitutionary death on the cross. We're celebrating Jesus' resurrection. That's what Easter is all about. You see, all three of those things, his life, his death, and his resurrection, are crucial for us this morning in our faith. You see, the Bible says that Jesus lived that perfectly holy life that God has commanded us to live. Yet we've fallen short. He's lived it perfectly. He earned heaven where we have earned hell because none of us here are sinless. Every single one of us, if you have a single sin in your life, you've fallen short of the glory of God. You say, yeah, but I did all this other stuff to make up for that. No, no, no. The question is not, have you done enough good? That's not the question. Have I done enough good? Wrong question. The answer is, have I done anything bad? Have I sinned one time? Because I don't have to rob 10 banks to be guilty. I only have to rob one, right? I only have to be a liar once. I don't have to do it a hundred times. Just one time is enough to fall short of the glory of God. Yet Jesus lived that perfectly holy life and earned heaven. But not only that, he died on the cross. That's what happened this past Friday. We call it Good Friday. You see, the Jews and the Romans, they arrested Jesus and they put him to death. Why? Because he claimed to be what Peter declared him to be, the Christ, the son of the living God. And they arrested him because of that, doing nothing other than telling the truth. And that got him arrested on that Thursday night. But then by Friday morning, he was sentenced to die by crucifixion, which is a terrifying way to die. Mark's gospel, Mark 15, 25, tells us that it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's nine in the morning. So just think about this, how efficient, how eager they were to crush Jesus on the cross because that's nine in the morning. And y'all even had your coffee sometimes by nine in the morning, right? I mean, at least <laughs> that's how it is sometimes, right? We're just getting going. And already by this time, they had punched Jesus in the face and they had spat upon him. They had beat him until he was swollen and, and disfigured and almost beyond recognition. They had whipped him into an, uh, within an inch of his life to a bloody pulp with a cat of nine tails. They had already mocked him by putting a purple cloth as a pretend royal robe and a reed in his right hand as a pretend scepter. 
And they had mashed a crown of thorns on his head as a pretend royal crown to mock him. Already by this time this morning, he was, he was in this severely weakened state. And they had him carry his crossbeam. At least we know it was his crossbeam. Maybe the whole cross. To the place where his crucifixion would be. And when he could carry it no more, they compelled a man to help him to carry it. By 9 a.m. that morning, they had already driven spikes through his hands, most likely not through his palms, but through his wrists, right at the base of his hands there where it hurts insatiably, terribly. They had nailed his hands and his feet to that wooden cross. By 9 a.m. that morning, they had hoisted him up on the cross to die. And that's where he remained for the next six hours until 3 p.m., when he died and he was as dead when he died he was as dead as dead can be because the sabbath was just three hours away they they quickly took jesus and and put him in a tomb not like out here at fairview cemetery where you dig down in the dirt but in israel in those days they would dig into the side of a mountain and so to speak and, and, and kind of make a cave and so they put him in that tomb and they rolled this massive stone over it, and, and authorities placed guards at the entrance. But guess what, beloved? Is that the end of the story? <laughs> no way, man, that's not the end of the story. You see, after Peter had declared that Jesus is the Christ, we see that Jesus began to teach them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things by the chief elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, that he must be killed but three on the third day be raised. And guess what? Sunday was that third day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On that Sunday morning when the Sabbath was over, some ladies who had followed Jesus, they went to the tomb to give Jesus' body a proper burial because they didn't have time on that Friday before the Sabbath began at sundown. And so they came with spices to anoint his body. But when they arrived, an angel from God had moved that big rock covering the tomb. And that angel said to the ladies, Matthew 28, verse 5 and 6, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He is risen. And he said, come see the place where he lay. Luke's gospel gives us a little more detail into what the angel said. Luke 24, verse 5, 6, and 7. I love this question the angel asked the ladies. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise beloved jesus rose from the dead he came back to life that day and he lives forevermore. so what is today's takeaway what are we to take away from this this morning and it's this trust in jesus our only hope trust in his life Trust in his death 
and see his resurrection. Trust in that, but see his resurrection as proof that his life and his death are efficient to save any sinner. Trust in Jesus. If you're already a Christian this morning, what do you do with this? Is that you cling ever more tightly. You hope ever more in Jesus. If you hoped on him yesterday, you hope on him even more today. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, today would be the perfect day to come and wrap your arms around Christ and say, I trust you, Jesus. You are my only hope. It's funny. When I hear that phrase, our only hope, as I was preparing to preach to you, I don't know, maybe I'm a geek or a nerd. I don't know what I am. But, but I can't help but be brought back to when I was a little kid watching that first Star Wars movie. <laughs> did, did y'all remember this clip? Check out this clip. Years ago, you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack, and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And for some reason, when I wrote today's takeaway, trust in Jesus, our only hope, that scene came to my mind. You see, Obi-Wan Kenobi might have been Princess Leia's only hope in the Star Wars universe. But guess what? In the real universe, Jesus Christ is our only hope. Beloved, I say to you this morning, don't misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection prove that he is the Christ, the Christ, not a Christ, the Christ. He is our only hope. He lived the life that you and I cannot live, earning heaven for all who will believe on him. And he died the death that you and I deserve, paying hell for all who will believe on him. It should have been us on that cross, you see. We're the sinners. We're the ones that deserve death and the wrath of God in hell. But Jesus died and suffered God's wrath in our place. And he rose again from the dead to prove, to prove that his life and death will save any sinner from sin, death, and the devil who will believe on Jesus. So trust in Jesus, your only hope. He's your only hope. On this Easter morning, the question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Here's my final prayer. May your Easter be sweet because Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is alive. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. 
I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.